Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovation in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to another episode of Need to Know. I'm your host, John Molusky. Well, the relationship between China and the United States has seen better days. For lack of a new term, many have dusted off Cold War as a way to describe the current state of affairs. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken just returned from a high-level visit to the People's Republic, raising hopes that we could see a thaw in the increasingly frosty relationship between the two superpowers, but not so fast. At a campaign event in California, President Biden referred to President Xi as a dictator. And of course, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs was quick to respond. A spokesman called the remarks extremely absurd and irresponsible. He went on to accuse the president of seriously violating diplomatic protocol and seriously infringing on China's political dignity, which as an open they characterize as an open political provocation. So, so much for a thaw. To help us sort it all out, we turn to our man on the China beat, the director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States, Robert Daly. Robert, welcome back. Great to see you. Good to be with you. So, uh, Robert, so much for building positive momentum. Yes. You know, interestingly, before Secretary Blinken went to China, uh, he was really under assault in the party-led media. Uh, They personalized attacks on him to an unusual degree. It wasn't just about hegemony. They actually went after Blinken himself. Uh, in spite of that, while he was on the ground, the visit really went pretty well. It, it, it stayed on script. It was according to expectations. But in the critiques that China published before Blinken arrived, there was an extensive section out how uni- the United States never follows through on how the history of relations over the past several years has been that the United States extends a hand and then slaps it away. That is, that as soon as we go for stabilization or responsible management of the relationship, we will hit them with, you know, export controls or some other criticism. And so the Biden comments from China's point of view here fall very much into the predicted pattern. They, they Oops, said, they're, they're respond- yeah. And so their response has been, you know, there, yeah, there, there they go. This, yeah. this is what we expected. Now, but we know that it we, we may want to explain, whoops, we did it again to the otherwise very sophisticated <laughs> foreign policy focused need to know crowd. I will give them something to Google. How about that? So, but, you know, it is campaign season and we know that the rhetoric is not necessarily a reflection of true policy. Do the Chinese get that as it relates to the things they might start to hear on the campaign trail? Well, they, they do to a degree, except that this fits another pattern. Uh then candidate Biden uh, called Xi Jinping a thug. Uh, about a year ago at another private campaign event, he was reported as saying that Xi Jinping doesn't have a small D democratic bone in his body. And then uh, he made an impromptu uh, comment about Xi Jinping, which was read as an insult in Beijing during the State of the Union address, where he said that you know no world leader would want to be in Xi Jinping's position. And now he's called him a dictator. So yes, they understand the politics, but they also see a pattern. And this is 
it's an unfortunate development. And the reason that it's unfortunate is that there has been a very useful fiction maintained over the past several years that President Biden and Xi Jinping have a close personal relationship because they've met so many times going back to when they were both vice presidents. And as I say, well, that's a useful fiction. It's a fiction of sorts. You want to maintain it because as long as the two leaders are seen as being above the churn, it means you can use symmetry to get action that you can't get just with the battling bureaucracy. So you sort of want to maintain that. And personalizing the relationship makes that a lot more difficult. China attacks the United States constantly. It calls us a hegemon. Uh, it says much worse things. We're the biggest uh, source of global instability. Uh, we are at fault for the war in Ukraine. So it's not that they don't insult us, but they have never personalized it with reference to Joe Biden. Say so they did with Secretary Blinken before he went, and he and Blinken succeeded anyway. Now that it's personalized, it gets a little tougher, a little bit tougher. When, when uh, you mention all of the harsh rhetoric before the visit, but what about the coverage of the visit? Was this a big deal in China? Yes, uh, the visit was quite a big deal. It was somewhat upstaged among the ordinary Chinese people by uh, sort of a very human feel-good event that wasn't reported here. Uh, the Argentine and Australian national soccer teams were playing a friendly match in Beijing and a high school student from China wearing an Argentine powder blue and white uh, jersey got onto the field, ran out and hugged Lionel Messi. Messi smiled and hugged him back. And then he proceeded to run all around the field while security people chased him and, and the people <laughs> in China uh, loved this. And so that upstaged the Blinken visit. But the Blinken visit was widely reported. Uh, it was reported as are all visits with an implication that America is coming sort of uh, hat in hand as something of a supplicant uh, to see the great one. That's always there, but you can, you mm -hmm. can live with that. But it was still, it was a, it was a good visit. He had 35 minutes with Xi Jinping. Uh, he had a long session with the foreign minister, Chin Gong, and with Wang Yi, who is, is sort of the foreign affairs maven. Uh, it all seemed to go according to script. Uh, both sides were very candid about their disappointments uh, with the other. These were all known factors. But he seemed to have laid the groundwork for a series of meetings that would probably include Secretary of Commerce Raimondo, Secretary of the Treasury Yellen, and others, all of which would build toward a mooted Biden-Xi meeting on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco in mid-November. Um, the question is now where that's going to stand. Prior to Biden's agreement, I had been saying in other uh, international media hits, and I, I, I'm not claiming uh, any prophetic powers here. It's actually fairly easy to do. I said the real test of whether China was truly committed to dialogue would be whether the dialogues continued after the next real or perceived insult or provocation. And lo and behold, within 24 hours, we didn't had. waste any time to test no, that theory. And they'll, and they'll keep coming. Now, I think that China is going to give Biden a mulligan on this one if it doesn't get uh, too widely amplified because China also needs a stabilization in the relationship because Xi Jinping needs to focus on the domestic economy. Uh, and so the foreign ministry said what it said. I think it stops there again, unless it's amplified, but of course the American media is, is likely to amplify this. So we'll, we'll see where it goes, you know, and, and then China is going to face a dilemma 
It doesn't want to engage with this issue too long. It doesn't want to stop on it because they don't want an international debate about whether Xi Jinping is, in fact, a dictator or not. That doesn't work for China. Uh, so this is going to be an interesting test. Well, a lot of verbal, if we ignored the Biden comment about dictators, uh, a lot of verbal olive branches emerged from the Blinken visit. Uh, she himself said they agreed to follow through on common understandings. Blinken called the meetings important. Uh, the Chinese official readout described candid, in-depth conversations. Uh, would we be talking about a thawing of relations had President Biden not said what he said? No, I think a thaw would be an exaggeration, although you're right that the readouts were good. And in fact, Xi Jinping had said that he saw progress in the relationship. And he was, uh, from China's point of view, sort of going out on a limb there. Uh, and then Biden rather sort of sawed off the limb, right? <laughs> uh, at, at, at least for now. But the you know, the relationship is is so fraught that you could seek a stabilization of sorts, but a stabilization was never, in the telling of either country, uh, an attempt to actually alter the nature of the relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, both sides are looking for more. Both have an awful lot to do. But as we said after Biden and Xi met in Bali last fall, Neither leader has reconsidered his goals or intentions. Neither leader has reconsidered his assessments of the other, the other leader, the other country. Neither of them has reconsidered his beliefs about his own country and its place in the world. So all of the factors that have brought us to this factor, are this state, are very firmly in place. That said, meetings and a tempering of rhetoric are a very good thing, if that can be maintained. Did we learn anything of substance from the meetings? Did anything leak out? Do we know any specifics that they may have discussed? Well, we know a lot about what they said. All of it was stuff that, you know, if I had sat down with a Chinese counterpart before and and, and scripted these meetings, uh, then based only on the readouts, obviously there's a lot that's not in the readouts, a great deal. Uh, but we certainly could have, with 95% accuracy, have guessed what each side said publicly coming out of these meetings. So nothing new. Uh, but what matters is that they they happened at all. And again, that there's an attempt to begin a process uh, of more traditional diplomacy after long periods of silence. You know, China had cut off what were fairly uncertain dialogues after then Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan uh, last summer. The uh, Secretary Blinken then canceled his trip to China in January after the spy balloon was shot down. Uh, so we keep trying, but it's one step forward, two steps back and and say, let's see now whether the, the trips that have not been scheduled, but have, that have been largely agreed to go forward. Again, if there are no further provocations, I think that they will. But I also think there will be further provocations. The, the issues that are on the table between the two nations are very significant. I mean, you look at now China and Cuba. You talk about concerns about China potentially at some point deciding to provide lethal aid to Russia in Ukraine, even though for now they've ruled that out. Uh, and then there's, of course, Taiwan. Where do you begin? Where, where would you recommend that policymakers in the U.S.? I, I don't even know that you could call it low-hanging fruit, but where do you begin rebuilding the relationship in a more yeah, constructive manner. I think it's I think it's time to take the phrase low-hanging fruit out of US China yeah. relations. People have been talking yeah. about that for a while and it, it doesn't really mean very much. Uh, I think that there are two things that the United States could do in the very short term. 
Uh, one is to lift the sanctions against General Li Shangfu. We sanctioned him uh, when he was instrumental in buying weapons from Russia in 2018. He is now China's Minister of Defense, and they are refusing to start mill-mill talks with us because he is under sanction. They, they, they ask, I think many people would say fairly reasonably, how he, they can meet as equals when he is under sanction by the United States. Now, that's not the only reason that China doesn't want mill-mill talks. It's, it's partially an excuse, but it's also reasonable. And we can be, you know, a grown-up superpower and simply remove the sanctions, remove that obstacle. Secondly, I think that it would be useful if we stated what we mean by the one China policy, instead of just saying that we abide by it, say exactly what we mean by it, and then abide by that. And then, of course, there are things uh, that China could do, too. It can uh, release Americans who are being wrongly held or under exit bans. It could make a really serious attempt to stop the flow of precursor uh, materials that go into fentanyl production in Mexico. And it could decrease its uh, cruises and flights around Taiwan. So if there's a real interest in walking it back, there are clear ways we could both signal that. And this military-to-military -military communication that you mentioned, this isn't just symbolism here. We're talking about the potential to avoid mistakes or miscalculations or misreads of the other side's intentions. Absolutely. Chinese ships have been cutting across our bow in the Western Pacific in what is clearly the global commons, international waters. And uh, Chinese fighter jets have also been cutting in front of our much slower-moving um planes, some of which are indeed, you know, sort of spy planes of a sort, but they're operating in international airspace completely legally. China is, you know, flirting with trouble that way. And it was this kind of process that led in 1999 uh, to the incident in which a Chinese hotshot pilot actually hit our spy plane. He died. Our guys scuttled on, on Hainan Island and were taken hostage while then Secretary of State Colin Powell got busy negotiating. Uh, that worked out in the age of engagement. The age of engagement is over. How would a crisis of that kind be handled now uh, when there's profound distrust between both sides? We don't know the answer to that, but having more regular dialogues would help uh, both sides to manage that kind of uh, crisis should it occur and the likelihood of its occurring is going up. A quick final thought. Uh, I know that you've testified in front of Congress many times that you've done briefings for members who are traveling to China or interested in China. What's the number one tip that you give American legislators when you're telling them how to approach thinking about and talking about and talking to China? Right now, I think it, you know, an awful lot of our congressmen engage in uh, poking the dragon for the sheer sport of it. Um, you know, sort of who who can who can insult or escalate more, and I I would just say cut it out. By all means, criticize China in the many ways it needs to be criticized, uh, but do so coolly and do so based on evidence, mm -hmm. and stick to that and strip the emotion out. By all means, make your point, uh, but our rhetoric is something that we can control unilaterally. Uh, and we need a return to the discipline that has really characterized diplomacy and government language uh, for a very long time. You know, you and I are both interested uh, not only in international affairs, but also in popular culture. And there's been a, a cheapening of the coin, a sort of a South Parkization of American political rhetoric, both domestically and internationally. And the rest of the world, and China in particular, don't respond very well to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like the South Park song, Blame Canada, now is Blame China, I right, suppose. Right, right. Going to your pop culture reference. Well, Robert, thank you very much, as always. Terrific stuff. And for more information on Robert Swork and the Kissinger Institute on China and the U.S., you can visit wilsoncenter.org. That's where you'll also find more information about this podcast and many others and other valuable content from the Center. So that's all for this edition of Need to Know. Until next time, for all of us at the Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. Thank you.